Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean Spirit, great to be in touch with you and Stuart Thompson on this, guys, the 16th of December. I'm counting seven days till Christmas. What is the state of present shopping in the Thompson household store? Are you, <laughs> oh man, are you ahead of schedule, behind schedule? What's up? No, I got a little uh, pang in my stomach when you said present shopping there because I have done absolutely zero. <laughs> we just moved a couple of weeks ago, so we're behind schedule on everything. And I think my wife and I might actually schedule some kind of truce where we just say, let's just bail on this. Um, but we're still in negotiations. Roger, nice. I'm like the student who has a due date uh, and at this point is hoping for like a snowstorm or something like that. <laughs> I think you guys know that uh, my wife's expecting January 1st, although we're kind of in the zone now where it can come anytime. Um, and so if the baby comes before Christmas, I'm thinking I might get a pass on on presents. Yeah. That's my Hail Mary at this point. Nice. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've discovered in the last 48 hours the joys of Amazon Prime. So <laughs> I, but I'm warning to listeners, you can't, you got to move on Amazon Prime this weekend because then the shipping times, they start to slip away and you're not going to get your package on the 22nd or 23rd. Well, talking about things slipping away, I want to begin today's show on the by-election results uh, that um, we had here in Ontario, in Mississauga. Um, I wouldn't, I don't know, is it a surprise win or not, but the federal liberals handily um, winning this by-election, significant margin here. Yes, an experienced former provincial liberal cabinet minister, Charles D'Souza, you know, taking the seat. But let me come to you first, Sean. Um, one would think maybe given national polls about the liberal government, about Trudeau's popularity, maybe coulda, shoulda this race have been closer for Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party of Canada. Yeah, uh, let me just make two quick points. The, the first is on, on the strength of the Liberals. Uh, you know, it seems to me, Rudyard and Stewart, one thing that's notable here is even after seven years of, uh, you know, all of the all of the imperfections and 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 tired, you know, the, the, the kind of tiring nature of governing, all of that imposed on this government, they're still attracting high quality candidates, uh, as you said, a former provincial finance minister and winning by-elections in the parts of the country um, that you need to win general elections. There's something about the staying power of this government that's notable here. I, you know, I think listeners may know that I served in the Harper government. By seven years, we were not attracting former finance ministers uh, to run for us in by-elections. In a way, there's a kind of like market revealed preference here that, um, that it's a sign that there is people are prepared to kind of invest in Justin Trudeau's equity. Uh, which I think is interesting. And then second, just quickly on the conservative side, um, 
Rudyard and Stewart, this is the 156th or 157th most competitive riding for the Conservative Party of Canada. In other words, it is a crucial step on a path to not just a majority government, but even a, a, a meaningful minority government, which, of course, this party will probably need, given the composition of the, the federal parliament. So, you know, we've seen a lot of spin from the Conservatives that uh, about the result, but I, I think it's, it's, it's hard not to call it a disappointment um, that this is precisely the kind of riding the Conservative Party needs to win if it's going to form government. Uh, and as Stuart has mentioned a couple of times over the past couple of days, it's not just that they lost. They lost worse than they did relative to the 2021 general election. And I, I think that ought to cause some, um, not panic, but certainly introspection on the part of uh, Pierre Polyev and his team. So, so Stuart, what do you, what's your gut telling you that happened here? I mean, is it that the strengths around Pierre Polly personally as a leader, his kind of dominance of social media as a medium of political communication, his seeming, you know, just masterful leadership win. I mean, it's, I think there were just two writings that he failed to uh, be returned in as the preferred candidate for the party. You would have thought that all of that would have translated into some momentum that would have lasted till now, you know, December 2022. So I don't know. It it's this surprises me. I, I I'm tr but I I'm stuck at trying to figure out, you know, is it a one off? Is but it, or is it a bigger problem that some kind of conveyor belt around this guy and around this party isn't working right now in terms of the court of public opinion? Yeah, I. You asked earlier if it was a surprise, and I'll tell you it was not a surprise to the people around Polyev and Polyev himself because they knew for a while this was not going to be good for them, and they were staying away from it for that reason because if he looked like he was trying really hard to campaign and then lost by 10 or 11 points, that's even worse. Um, but they, you know, the one thing that I think they'll be looking at here is that um, first of all, it was a good candidate for the Liberals. I think Sean's right. That does make a little bit of difference. Um, Polyev is still new. He's coming in and sort of setting things up. Um, they don't think it's a good riding. They think the riding is a wealthy riding that maybe won't be the kind of riding that goes to Polyev in the future. But the thing that I think I would be really worried about if I were a conservative is that the NDP vote collapsed in that riding. And you could uh, think of a few reasons for that. Um, I, you could blame the leader, Jagmeet Singh, you could blame a lot of other factors. But if there is a situation where Polyev is really worrying, you know, liberal voters or people who lean in between those two parties and their NDP voters are rushing to the liberals, that's the exact kind of situation that liberals will be excited about. And it's the exact kind of situation that will ruin the conservatives chance of even a minority government if it goes this hard. Um, so uh, they've got to worry about that because that is the big fear about Polyev is that he's so polarizing that it pushes everyone on the left to the liberals. Yeah, Sean, I mean, that to me suggests, you know, Fortress, G uh, Fortress uh, GTA is intact here, that that's the coalition that basically has created this ring fence around not just here in Ontario, but other provinces too. these kind of pockets of just intense uh, a center left you know support that go to the liberal party of canada have gone to this prime minister in the last few elections and have created a base under the party in terms of its seat count in the house which is really really tough to chip away at 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And you saw it in the prime minister's Christmas uh, address to the Liberal Party caucus and party staffers. He was clearly um, sort of animated or, or galvanized um, by the outcome. Um, and the, the other thing I would add, including the strategic voting dynamic here, which I think uh, you and Stuart are right to seize on, there's also, I think, a case that um, the Polyev message that Canada is broken um, uh, may not be uh, resonating as much as he, him and the party thinks. Polyev has, uh, in effect, uh, thus far, committed himself to uh, prosecuting a case about the state of Canada's economy, right? That the Trudeau government's deficit spending, printing money, et cetera, has created kind of inflationary pressures that are probably going to produce a recession. And, you know, what I kind of interpret the outcome from, a, a, again, a, a place that the Conservatives must win the next election, people might be saying, yes, uh, we recognize the economy is weakening, um, that there are increasing pressures on our households, um, but they're not necessarily prepared to blame Justin Trudeau uh, for that, that they see that some of these trends are broader, global, more, more structural. Um, and I guess just the last point I'll make, because I, I think that there, there are limits to the Canada is broken narrative. Uh, in 2004, I don't know if you guys remember, um, the Harper Conservative Party um, prosecuted the case against Paul Martin and liberals on sponsorship, and I think took for granted that Canadians would in fact throw the bums out simply because of the sponsorship scandal, and, and that it didn't work. It wasn't until 2005, 2006, uh, when that message of throw the bums out was augmented with a, a proposition about governing, uh, lowering the GST, uh, wait times guarantee, the Federal Accountability Act, and so on. So I guess that's a long way of saying it can't simply be a message of Canada's broken. It has to be Canada's broken, and here's what we're going to do to fix it. And thus far, that has been missing from um, the way that the party has, has talked about its agenda uh, under Pierre Polyev. Hmm. Yeah, I was talking to a smart economist the last week or so, and he made a good point. It's something we all got to remember, which is that when you have high inflation, you often do get in consumer surveys, these so-called sentiment surveys, a lot of like negativity. People don't like high prices. They don't like going to the grocery store. And as I recently did, paid something like $12 for, you know, three chicken sausages. Um, it doesn't feel good. It creates negativity. But the reality is that when you have inflation, it means your economy is running really hot. Like it means there's a lot of employment. It means there's a lot of demand for uh, goods and services, right? Like we're not on the recession side of this yet. Certainly maybe where we're headed, but we're not there yet. And the economy in a sense is hot. People may view it negatively. They may have a pessimistic outlook about the future, but the reality right now is employment is through the roof. And um, I think we're ending this year with a lot of, you know, strength in the Canadian economy that's still going to have to get sucked out by these higher interest rates. So Stuart, is this really just a question, you know, should we chalk this whole by-election up to a snapshot in time, right? And, you know, a day is, uh, you know, what's a day in politics uh, in terms of how the next six months or the next year might look? Yeah, I think that is, um, it would ruin a lot of our fun to not be able to analyze <laughs> by-elections and overanalyze by-elections. But yeah, I mean, if you look at any of the sea changes that happen in Canadian politics, um, and then look at by-elections leading up to them, there's not necessarily an indicator there. And 
obviously also it's an extremely small sample size compared to all these writings, but you know, I, I'm interested in where the Polyev team goes from this because I do know that Aaron O'Toole thought that Mississauga Lakeshore was a really good riding for him. And it was something that they targeted in the last election. They didn't win it. So maybe they learned something from that, or maybe, you know, a better strategy could win that um, riding. But if you don't win ridings like that, you have to win something. And really the only other path other than the GTA would be Quebec. And that is a hard road for conservatives. But I will note that, uh, Polyev spoke to caucus this week and did a lot of his speech in French, started off the first 10, 15 minutes in French. Um, and there is this sort of theory that I'm a little bit susceptible to that if you were around the trucker convoy um, or the one at the border, there were a lot of uh, people from Quebec there. Um, it's just a really hard circle to square for a national conservative party. So um, it'll be really intriguing to watch how they do it um, if yeah. that is their plan. No, look, and I, and I don't want to poo-poo that we're, we couldn't be seeing something here because Pierre Polyev has created this new political coalition. He's he's tapped into a kind of a new vein of political energy in the country, and and it always has been. We talked about it during the leadership. Would that translate? Does that energy and that same coalition that brought him to power and leadership does that translate generally? It didn't in this by election, uh, but there's still a lot of water to flow under the bridge. Um, well, look, guys, let's um, put a pin in the first half of the show here. When we come back on the back half, uh, we're going to have a, an intramural debate here at the Hub. Luke Smith, our deputy editor, is going to join the program. He's writing this week um, in ways that, uh, yeah, I, I found uh, beautiful to read, but more importantly, substantively about some of the threats of AI and chat uh, GPT, a, a big focus of the hub this week, this bot that uh, seems like it's semi-intelligent, seems like it's threatening the creative class. Uh, Sean Spear, very different view. I don't know where I am, the mushy middle, but uh, I'll moderate the debate back right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable, our weekly dive into the issues and ideas making news. Uh, we are joined, as always, by Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Special guest appearance from Edmonton coming into the program, Luke Smith, our deputy editor. Hey, Luke, how's it going? You got snow on the ground out there? You're going to have a white Christmas in Edmonton? Well, we've had we've had snow for months, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm here in my apartment in Edmonton, which I'm happy to say is within walking distance of a Cactus Club cafe. So if, <laughs> if you guys don't know what that story is referencing to, then probably good for you, but yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, here, I, I want to talk about what's been a, a lively uh, series of kind of opinions and commentary reflection on the Hub this past week. And, you know, it's really something I think that everyone's been talking about the last 10 days or so, which is the emergence of 
maybe the first objective, powerful demonstration of machine learning in the form of this new chat bot, uh, chat GPT. Uh, you can check out various stories on the hub uh, about this, including something I wrote, Sean wrote, and Luke wrote. I guess we're like many people at the hub struggling with trying to understand what the impacts of this technology are. Um, and is this something we should be worried about? Is this a sign that, I don't know, um, human creativity, a lot of what we love about our humanity is kind of slipping away from us? Or is it a a fantastic opportunity to amplify those very traits that define us as this remarkable tool-making species. So a little debate today, Sean, you were kind of um, our our, poly, our Pollyannish contributor this week on chat GPT saying this is heralding a culture of abundance, the coming culture of abundance. What did you mean and why are you excited about it? I subscribe to the view associated with people like Tyler Cowen or Ross Douthat that at the heart of a lot of our economic and social political turmoil these days um, is uh, a, a kind of stagnation in our economy, uh, a lack of technological progress, and what Douthat calls um, a growing evidence of decadence. And, you know, it seems to me um, growth is a necessary, perhaps insufficient, but fundamentally necessary condition to get us out of these doldrums. And um, so I'm always on the lookout for um, emerging technology, scientific breakthroughs that can kind of help to pull us collectively out of this zero-sum mindset that I think is sort of pulling us apart. And, and in that sense, I, I think, as we talked about last week, chat GPT and the underlying technology looks um, like one of the most important breakthroughs that we've seen in a, in a long time. And I don't diminish um, some of the risks that that Luke, uh, as you said, beautifully outlined in, in his essay, which I strongly recommend listeners to check out. Um, but I think those risks are worth it, guys. Like I, I think actually the risk of ongoing decadence um, is going to be a further collapse into pessimism and, and polarization. Um, um, that won't just eat away at our own societies, but actually make us susceptible to growing challenge from, from China. We need to kind of buck ourselves up. Um, and in that sense, I think this technology is uh, one of the most kind of interesting and exciting on, on offer in, in a long, long time. Well, let's bring Luke Smith in the conversation. Luke, I'll just quote the final paragraph of your piece that you wrote for the Hub uh, this week for us. Uh, listeners can go find it right now at uh, www.thehub.ca. You say, Grand, beautiful, lasting, human-centered things are mostly laborious, expensive, inefficient, unprofitable, and require tremendous sacrifice. And yet we have done them always and can do so again. If the future is beginning to look a little dystopian to our eyes, then it's up to us to change it. So unpack that for us, Luke. What are you getting at and why do you see something like the emergence of chat GPT? as a threat to that laborious, expensive, inefficient, but wonderful kind of human condition. Yeah, for sure. So first of all, thank you for quoting my writing. I'm a much better writer than a speaker. So getting off to a good start, I might not be super eloquent, but I'll give it my best try. Um, yeah, I just want to make sure that if the emergence of these types of technologies are as big a deal as the most optimistic um, 
boosters of it or the the most pessimistic pessimistic um, people are making it out to be, then I think there's there's just a really a responsibility um, in prudence in in making sure that we are thinking through the actual consequences of the kind of um, as as Sean himself likes to always say, the political economy consequences of 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 what is emerging. Um, so I just know that there is a tendency amongst the commentariat and the uh, the people that think about these types of things to to uh, to be susceptible to uh, an air of inevitability about all these things that that what is in the world is what had to be in the world and I just I want to push a bit back against that and and say that there's nothing inevitable about the future it's uh, we are the ones responsible for creating it and so mm -hmm. we should be we should be um, um, considerate in what we what we do there now my own preference is obviously um, subjective and can be debated but I just want to make sure that we have that debate um, in terms of being being thoughtful and making sure that we pursue uh, a human-centered um, approach to the world mm -hmm. we're building. Can I just respond to that, Rudyard? Sure. I, Go ahead. I've thought a, you know, I, 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 my heart is with Luke. Um, but if you're like me, you've spent a lot of the past six or seven years in the aftermath of Trump election, figuring out like what was going on, what were the conditions in our society, economically, socially, culturally, politically, to permit north of sixty million people to vote for this guy. Um, like, in a way, I don't think there's a more important kind of question facing our societies. What were those underlying conditions? And I've, I've become persuaded after like a lot of thought that it is stagnation and decadence um, that is really kind of underlying those conditions that um, when people feel like the economy is slowing, like the future is bleak for themselves and their family, they're, um, they're then um, succumb to a kind of zero set, zero sum mindset and are drawn to um uh, do, you know, dogmatists, or pardon me, um, uh, to demagogues and, uh, and, and authoritarians. I, I, I put this question in a way uh, in a previous episode with Ross Douthat on Hub Dialogues, which I'd strongly recommend listeners check out. I won't read his entire answer, but he, he in effect says he believes, as I've just set out, that uh, the developed world is suffering from stagnation and a lack of dynamism, and that there's more danger in that than there is in the moral risks associated with social change or technological progress. And he goes on to say, and I think this is really directed at, at Luke, um, that the conservative who's interested in preserving ancient and traditional human goods, human forms of, of flourishing, have to be invested in some dynamism, some openness to risk, some novelty and some change. And, and, and I think that line of argument has, has taken me from Luke's point of view uh, to a greater openness to disruption and um, destabilization, because I, I think it's sort of false choice to, to think that that's not the path we're already headed on, mm -hmm. given um, the underlying conditions of, me, of decadence and stagnation. Let me bring Stuart um, Thompson, our editor chief here, because I, I take both of your arguments to heart, but I've also been curious I think I expressed this a little bit in my piece for the Hub this week on ChatGP about the extent to which all of us, the commutariat, as Luke calls us, the creative class, as I labeled us in our essay, there's this assumption that, and it's just in your remarks there, what you quoted from Ross Dotha, that 
the future will remain a human-centered future. And I'm just not so sure about that, guys. Like, yes, I'm not saying chat, chat GPT is replacing us tomorrow, but when you start putting these technologies together, you know, they're called stack technologies for a reason. You take machine learning, you plug it into data sets that Google and others now have around the world of terabytes of terabytes of information. I think each one of us on Facebook has 15,000 recorded variables about our preferences and inclinations and tastes. And then you plug in quantum computing on top of that, guys, you start to assemble a stack that is going to be so powerful, as I wrote in my piece, so, uh, so much of an analog, not just to the industrial revolution, and we know all the political and social turmoil that flowed from that, but we need to remember that the industrial revolution was constrained by physical inputs. Its pace of change was limited by the amount of resources it could consume, and by the amount of human labor that could be applied to it. But guys, this is different. This time we're talking about the power to transform society through zeros and ones, which can be manufactured at infinite supply and distributed at speeds approaching that of light. So I just, I think all these arguments, I'm, I, as I write my piece, like I really am coming around to the scary idea that the, the Ray Kurzweil's of this world might've got it right. We might be at a, at a waterfall moment here and a movement from this human world of paleo conservatives and conservatives open to, you know, change and dynamism to a world where our culture, society, values, and mores are shaped and crafted by learning machines. I don't know, Stuart, is, am I being too uh, cyberpunk for uh, <laughs> the hub round table this morning? <laughs> Well, one of the first big features I ever wrote for a newspaper was about the singularity, the AI singularity and quoting Kurzweil. And there's a professor in Edmonton who actually does a course on this and their optimism always creeped me out because I just like, I can't feel optimism about that world. I'm similar to how Luke says. And the one thing that does scare me is that I think technology should be here to augment human flourishing. It's here to help us, um, do better things. And there was kind of this idea that it would be great if, you know, robots did everything and we got to sit in a park and write poetry and, you know, hang out, but that's not, that's not the world. The world will be people playing video games in their basement. And we've seen this, um, you know, when you give people money to stay home, that's what they do. They don't go out and volunteer. Um, they do things that are probably uh, having a negative impact on their lives. So I worry because I have two daughters and we, in my group of friends, we have kids all the same age, except one friend who's kind of the canary in the coal mine with teenagers that he had early. And the social media impacts on his young kids is like preteens. Um, and, you know, we see this in research that, you know, increase in depression, increase in suicide attempts, increase in a lot of really bad things um, to a degree that is statistically significant. Um, we weren't able to constrain something as simple as social media, and we're having trouble now putting the genie back in the bottle. And that does not seem to me like as hard of a problem as AI doing a lot of our jobs. So I do worry a lot about it, but I also have this thing in the back of my head that if you look at what people were worried about in the 90s or in the 80s, um, 
it was never the things that actually turned out to be the problem. Um, and I do, you know, writing that piece about AI, there's a lot of, you know, counterbalance to the, the to the real pessimistic scenarios. So well, I um, will say the Milners with their, you know, little wool spinning whirls <laughs> were worried about the industrialization <laughs> of Great Britain. And they were right to be worried about it because 20 years later, their children were stuck in Gin Alley or forced into large scale, you know, manufacturing industrial plants, the satanic mills, as they were called at the time. I don't know, Luke, uh, I share your dystopia, Luke. I guess that's where I'm trying to frame this debate like I'm as as maybe pessimistic as you are Luke but I think you you somehow feel Luke that there isn't an inevitability here and I I struggle with that if machines can create things that are indistinguishable culturally from humans then how do we have a human future yeah for sure um I would say that as you kind of I think rightly diagnose if there are no physical constraints here then the only constraints will be the ones that we impose ourselves and that might be naively hopeful but it is if it is only up to us then it's up to us and you can take a little bit of solace in that as well so um i know that um as as stuart was saying like the dystopia may be inevitable but um you gotta you gotta fight while you can right um so i don't know that's that's might not be enough but that's all we have right so I just would maybe ask Sean a little bit of a question in terms of his his optimism. Um, a couple months ago, we kind of came out pretty hard against the remote work aspect of these new technological advances, um, and you guys were worried about the 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 consequences there of of, of a, a totally distributed workforce in terms of what is lost in terms of the human connection and the innovation and creativity that is bred in, in that sense. Um, do you, it's, I don't know, it just seems to me that this kind of advancement is going to turn work into about as irretrievably remote as it can get. Um, so so how, would, how would you conceptualize that? Then? I'd say two things. First of all, on your particular question, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I, I just, I think it's premature to assess what the implications will be for, for, for work, how much of it will be augmentative and versus disruptive uh, as Rudyard says, even if you go back to the Industrial Revolution, the story there is a combination of the two, right? It obviously created all types of new occupations and professional opportunities that didn't exist before um, before this kind of scalable technologies and, and the rise of, of industrial production. At the same time, it, it destroyed a lot of jobs. And that tension between dynamism on one hand and the kind of consequences in the moment can be hard to, to, to think about. Um, the second point I'd raise, though, is uh, I want to clarify one thing. I'm committed to a more dynamic future. I'm not necessarily committed to this particular dynamic future. The problem, of course, is that this is the particular dynamic future on offer. And to Luke's point about agency, that's primarily a consequence of our own choices, right? We've created a, a kind of a financial system, a regulatory system, et cetera, that has preferenced the economy of bits over the economy of atoms, or to put differently, the economy of, of thoughts over the economy of, of things. I'd much prefer our progress was in biomedicine, or manufacturing, or transportation, or energy, or whatever. Um, but of course, we've imposed, I mean, think about it this way, you can create an AI app uh, that has some of the disruptive potential that you guys have outlined, 
with no regulatory oversight, with no no licensing, no you know nothing, and, and zero cost. I mean, from a financial point of view, right? You just need a like a six pack of beer and a few engineers and a weekend. Um, but think about trying to produce new medicine or new forms of energy. I mean, you are stuck in a regulatory process that can take years and years and years. And so I guess where there may be a source of agreement, even if you, you know, even if you do subscribe to my view that we ought to be kind of committing ourselves to a dynamic vision of the future is uh, we have agency over what that future looks like. And it, it is regrettable. I agree that this seems to be the only one on, on offer these days. And that's where something we've talked about in the past, Polyev's message about building things and gatekeepers and so on is kind of circling around an idea that I think has a lot of, of potential. He just needs to kind of start to articulate the, the long-term benefits of our capacity to, to make more stuff. Mm -hmm. Just final point uh, to wrap up the show. I mean, just think of this last week, okay? Chat GPT. Um, an announcement, I think it was Moderna, that they have created a successful mRNA vaccine that's targeting um, skin cancer cells in people post-surgery. So these are people who are obviously had quite advanced melanoma. And the result of this, the, again, the whole untapped um, ability of, of mRNA uh, vaccines to affect not just COVID, but chronic disease is remarkable. And then the first signs, the first practical experiments that showed sustained hydrogen fusion. So I go back to Sean's point. I, I think there is something crazy going on in that this can look like an incredibly dark moment for us with a war in Ukraine, with, um, you know, a society that seems more polarized than ever with inequality at record highs, with recession looming in the near-term future inflation. But if we step back, you have to wonder, wow, these technologies are emerging, they're combining. And one would think, one would hope if we can survive the big existential threats that we face of nuclear Armageddon, AI, climate change, there is this future of abundance that is unfolding, I think, right now uh, before our very eyes. Luke Smith, I want to give you the last word on the podcast today. What are people going to be able to look forward to in their Monday editions and uh, just generally in the Hub next week? What are you working on as our deputy editor? Uh, what I'm working on is uh, giving Stuart stories to work on, which I think he has a couple <laughs> coming with uh, the economics of gift giving potentially, as well as uh, just a story on charitable donations as well. So um, other than that, yeah, we'll ha you'll have to wait and see. Subscribe. Yeah, we'll, to we'll be filling our own slate next week to uh, give our writers a break because it's not a good week for clicks. So we're taking the hit. And we got some crazy predictions coming up too. So people yeah. will uh, enjoy those. Okay, guys, get busy with the Christmas shopping. Uh, I told you Amazon Prime works for this weekend and then you're out of luck. Uh, you're trudging in the snow in your boots um, on Christmas Eve. Don't go there, Sean. Don't count on the baby to bail you out, my friend. <laughs> uh, everybody enjoy. We'll do this all again next Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. 
edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.